Another added value, which isn't required and not every producer will do because of this expense is the full panel test. And that's all of your safety screening for mycotoxins, microbials, heavy metals, and pesticides for a flower product. Now, residual solvent test is very important for finished products to identify any of those. But a lot of times a farmer will get that and I'll tell them it's dictated by your buyer. A buyer might not even entertain buying your hip crop if it doesn't have a full panel test. So they will know if they take it to extraction, if they do solventless extraction or they sell it in their store, they'll know that they're not concentrating those cannabinoids. When you take it from a plant to a small vial and concentrate, if it's not remediated properly, there'll be more of it, of whatever it is. It can be that way. So as you get on down the line and you go into a store or a farmer wanting to sell it to a store in a wholesale capacity or sell it to an extraction facility, the full panels come in again as in a quality control measure. You're listening to To Be Blunt, the podcast for cannabis marketers, where your host Shada Taravi and her guests are trailblazing the path to marketing, educating, and professionalizing cannabis. Light one up and listen up. Here's your host, Shada Taravi. Hello, and welcome back to the To Be Blunt podcast. I'm your host, Shada Taravi, cannabis business owner and brand marketer. And wow, do I have a whirlwind of thoughts that I'm still unpacking from my travels to Denver into the land of psychedelics and cannabis. I encourage you to go listen to my last episode if you want the brain dump version of a sampling of what I'm still working through. And also suggest you visit tobebluntpod.com and make sure you're subscribed so you won't miss future content drops because I'm going to be sharing a lot more of my thoughts over on that platform in long form, both written and audio. So please and thank you. I seriously walked away from that trip with so many rabbit trails, and I'm genuinely excited to begin to unpack them and for sure want to bring you along for the ride. One resource in particular that was recently shared with me as I've been going through my notes on psychedelics and cannabis that I honestly can't believe hasn't been on my radar before is a show That was once on Vice, and it's now on Hulu, and it's called Hamilton's Pharmacopoeia. Y'all, I just began watching, but it's diving into the chemistry and history and reality of a lot of different drugs, and specifically, synthesized compounds. I'm a few episodes in and have found it already super helpful to frame up what we're navigating here in the cannabis industry. So some high-level thoughts from the Psychedelic Science Conference that have me reeling are just how much synthetics are embraced in psychedelics and how much the rush towards adoption has enabled synthetic psychedelics to be the norm. I think people assume because I come from cannabis that I'm super familiar with other quote-unquote drugs, and the reality is actually far from it. Walking into the psychedelic science conference felt super foreign to me, like it was a completely different language that was being spoken. I also acknowledge that my understanding of psychedelics was really limited to magic mushrooms, for example, but now I feel like I can confidently rattle off a myriad of other psychedelics with promise like MDMA, DMT, and Ibergain, to name a few. Specifically, though, the ones I mentioned are in fact synthetically made, and they're embraced. 
which is such a contrast from the ever-evolving world of cannabis, which seems to fight, kick, and scream at every mention of synthetic cannabinoids. So if you're wondering what I'm noodling on, it's that. And I think it's going to continue to be a point of discussion, and I welcome the opportunity to continue to learn not just about the synthetic application of psychedelics and cannabis, but about psychedelics in general, what we can learn from that industry, and how it may or may not surpass cannabis in terms of adoption. So do you want to hear more about psychedelics on this podcast? Because if so, let me know. I definitely see the trends in the industry blurring the lines, and I'm not opposed to it. It's just super foreign to me, and I definitely enjoy staying in my lane, so to speak. Anyways, I'm glad to have you here. Thank you for pressing play, for being curious, and for joining me on the long road of taking cannabis products to market. I want to remind you that I want this space to remain safe for exploration and learnings. So if that's your jam, let's keep going. Today, I'm joined by a great friend of mine, Jesse Kearns. Jesse and his brother John own New Bloom Labs, a Tennessee-based cannabis lab testing facility. I first met Jesse down in Texas when New Bloom had opened up a potency lab in Dallas and subsequently would start seeing him around at the hemp trade shows. And we just would continue to become fast friends, learning from each other and sharing information and resources. Of course, over the years, our paths would continue to cross. And I'm proud to say that Jesse and I both serve on the executive board of the Texas Hemp Coalition. And again, I've always enjoyed working alongside him and hearing his perspective about his side of the industry, which is why it was long overdue to get him on the podcast. Jesse recently moved back to Tennessee to reevaluate the industry since the Texas hemp market has shifted quite a bit since New Bloom initially entered the market here. And I won't ruin the surprise. You'll have to listen to hear what state New Bloom has their eyes set on for their next expansion. But in the episode, we get into lab testing from cultivation testing for THC levels to potency and heavy metal testing to ensure consumer safety. We also discuss at length the variances of testing newly synthesized cannabinoids like Delta-8 and even HHC and THCO, as well as what standards are in place to ensure quality from product to product and even lab to lab. So I hope this episode enlightens you and informs you. And if you learn something new, I encourage you to reach out and let me know what you think. You can always find me at tobebluntpod.com and I'm on Instagram at tobebluntpod and at the shade of Trabi. So. A really great episode is about to unfold for you. Without further ado, please join me by lighting one up and let's welcome Jesse to the show. Well, hello, listeners. My name is Jesse Kearns. I'm one of the co-founders of New Bloom Labs. New Bloom Labs is a third-party analytical testing laboratory that started out in 2019 in Chattanooga. So we sought to alleviate a bottleneck in testing in the South. From there, we moved into Texas, where I moved down and had a remote potency lab down in Dallas and drove the width and breadth of Texas, meeting all those nice Texans. Seeing that emerging market and being able to lay that groundwork was very rewarding. We've been doing testing since 2019, and we hope to move into emerging adult use states very soon. My background is not in science. Me and my brother built and scaled the company. We're more of the front of the house that does billing and customer service and a lot of the sales. But our back of the house, we aligned and collaborated with, with gals from the blood and tox industry. So they're very familiar with all the instrumentation and validating these methods. And those gals were, in a lack of a better term, built for speed. They did five to 700 blood and urine tests a day. So we were able to apply that 
contract, that tracing, sample identification, and barcoding, apply that to cannabis. And that's really what has allowed us, one of our largest attributes is our consistency, our efficacy, and our quick turnaround. We offer next business day turnaround on every test but microbial from our Chattanooga headquarters. And just being really reliable and consistent and ethical has served us well from day one. Yeah, I'm so excited to have you on the podcast. Obviously, you and I go way back just being in Texas. And I was even thinking back to the first time I met you. I remember Sage, which is my now husband, but back then was my like secret boyfriend, so to speak. He was like, hey, you got to meet this guy, Jesse. And I think you were even like, maybe have you met this guy, Sage? And so everybody was kind of like conspiring to get everybody to meet each other. But very quickly, we became fast friends, you and I. And just really, I always appreciate our are just like transparency about the reality of kind of the industry that we find ourselves in. And I think I can relate to you in the sense of, no, do not have a chemistry or a science background, but I think by nature of what we do, we're both very passionate about it. And so we basically should have some PhDs behind us for the amount of effort and energy that we certainly put in. But no, New Bloom is a great resource. We love what you guys are doing. And I'm really excited to have you on the podcast today because one, you're representing a state, your home state is Tennessee. So I know there's some recent movement in the Tennessee ledge that I want to dive into, but also you come from Texas, my state. So I know that you can chop it up about what's going on comparing the two markets. And then obviously some of these other emerging markets that you mentioned and alluding to that New Bloom is either supporting or excited to go into. And so I guess to kind of back it up and lay the foundation for the listeners, because I do think that it's easy to put the idea of testing cannabis in a box, especially from a consumer perspective. It's, do you have a COA? It's like the joke I feel like is, yes, I have a COA, but can you read the COA? <laughs> and then I think there's still so much lacking in terms of who is holding the accountability of how frequently you test, the standardization, the standards in general, calibrating these machines. So I would just love to hear from your perspective, what you are seeing from just like a baseline testing perspective in terms of one, kind of what are some of the umbrella of tests being done? I know on the kind of low end, there's of course, potency tests. Everybody wants to know I guess originally it was how strong is my weed, how high is the THC, but certainly now with the introduction of minor cannabinoids into the conversation, people care about the CBD percentage, even the THCA percentage to Delta 9 THC, et cetera, things like that. But also there's microbials, there's pesticides. So I'd just love to hear from you. What are people coming to New Bloom for? And is that consistent in every state? Does every state have the same requirements for testing? Well, every state is, has different requirements. There's the federal hit bill that came down in 2018, and a lot of different states have adopted different sets of rules. Some of them have been very strict. Some of them aren't. A lot of states also never even picked up a hit program and referred it straight to the USDA. Mississippi is a great example of this. Another example is like Wisconsin, North Carolina, and Missouri had state programs for a while and then abandoned them and referred it all back to the USDA. So, you know, what I do to answer your question as the first as a customer service representative is, is I represent the numbers that are on the COA. So a customer will call and ask for a consultation. I can speak with them through what we did in our lab notes. If we ran it once, if we ran it twice, if we did a confirmatory analysis of it, and then we took a very thorough look and published our reports. So a lot of it is potency for sure. Not every state requires full panels. I don't think really any do. Tennessee started their bill and it's been a requirement 
Full panel testing for all inputs containing cannabinoids that are put into ingestible products. So that's a start. But for, and, and our lab in Texas was just a policy lab. There was just one machine and one associate, one lab tech in the back of myself. Any other full panel testing, we would just send up to ourselves the next day via the postal service, which is legal, and send it right up there. And we would still have the fastest turnaround for full panel testing. So yes, full panel testing does happen. To take you through the cycle of testing, we'll start with the farmer. So a farmer will get a lot permit in Texas and assign a certain variety, and they will start their growing process. Once you switch from veg to flower, it's good to check your potency in an unofficial capacity. Check, see what your total THC is. You clip, dry it down a day, send it to New Bloom, 65 bucks. You'll get a potency test the next day. You can monitor your total THC, and that gives you the signal to call your sampler in and go through the compliance process. Once you go through that process, that's another test of total THC plus a measurement of uncertainty. Once you go through your 30-day harvest window after that, you know, cannabinoids continue to develop. So you will cut, you cure, you'll trim and buck and get it to a finished product. And that's when you want to test to add value to your crop. You'll want to get an updated potency of just looking at the ends of the plant. A compliance test is a homogenized representation of a crop. Now, most of them are very small, but I've seen six acres of on a pivot in Dublin, Texas, of all CBD. That's a lot of plants out there. So there's they're designed to go through there and take a representation of the crop. So it is somewhat diluted. It's all homogenized together. But a post-harvest test of just the ends of the buds will give you a more accurate CBD percentage and total THC percentage and everything that you want to know. And that's what adds value to the crop and shows that, hey, how good you did. Another added value, which isn't required and not every producer will do because of this expense, is the full panel test. And that's all of your safety screening for mycotoxins, microbials, heavy metals, and pesticides for a flower product. Now, residual solvents test is very important for finished products to identify any of those. But a lot of times a farmer will get that and I'll tell them it's dictated by your buyer. A buyer might not even entertain buying your hip crop if it doesn't have a full panel test. So they will know if they take it to extraction, if they do solventless extraction or they sell it in their store, they'll know that they're not concentrating those cannabinoids. When you take it from a plant to a small vial of concentrate, if it's not remediated properly, there'll be more of it, of whatever whatever it is. It can be that way. So as you get on down the line and you go into to a store or a farmer wanting to sell it to a store in a wholesale capacity or sell it to an extraction facility, the full panels come in again as in a quality control measure. You'll use ethanol extraction. So ethanol is absolutely needs to be tested for in a residual solvents test. We see it all the time. Is ethanol dangerous? In some levels it can be, but there's some that you can have per day, per milligram per day. So it's a moving target. But what we do is the quality control standards. So yes, they may have sourced this product that helps clean out everything in between batches. But at the end of the month, they might have ran out and it took two weeks to get the next batch of whatever they used to clean everything. So they may have just cut a quarter that week. Well, that is what we're here for. So the, they'll get a product and you'll test it and it may still have that trace amount of solvent or metals or whatever that was in there. So it's, oh, it may not be required, but the high end 
top-notch above-board production facilities have their own quality control measures in place. And we'll get those regular a la carte solvents test or full panel test on a mother liquor or a crude to make sure that what they're doing every month is repeatable and consistent. And it's very important on the production side and the extraction side. On the differences between, maybe this is like dumb question amnesty, but just for clarification, obviously hemp and high THC cannabis, marijuana, they're the same plant. They're different industries, so they're regulated differently. Is there a different frequency of testing? Or, and the tests are the same, right? If you're testing a hemp crop versus a cannabis crop, like you're going to be testing for similar things. Maybe the state program for which you're in might, to your point, like Tennessee is now introducing explicit requirements for testing. But testing hemp versus testing like high THC cannabis and marijuana is the same process, right? There's no different calibrations or anything that would require you to like completely change your SOPs? Or maybe there are. I'm just curious. Well, for where we started and for what we saw from the hemp perspective and in the South and then moving into high THC and studying it the entire time was in with the hip bill, anybody could start a lab, basically. And it wasn't as standardized. And we've all talked about it. Your South Carolina Southwest panel covered it in a lot of very good ways. Is somebody can come up with an SOP, start a lab, and start selling tests. In adult use markets, it is that way. Mm. Some adult use markets will say, well, you have to incorporate the moisture reading and factor the moisture of the flower into the cannabinoid test, which can fluctuate a little bit if you're adding the moisture content to it. And it's stuff that we're validating right now at our emergent facility. So it's I have seen certain high THC states take more control of that and be a lot more a lot more strict about it. And then of course there's the uh, the contract tracing, the apps and the sampling that has to be followed all the way from the when the seed was assigned to a small plot. That goes all the way through and is tested in this in this tracked in an app that the council has access to and that has, is much more rigorous and, uh, and requirements are out the roof for sure. No, that's a great point. I definitely would agree, right? If you have a regulated program, there is at least, I wouldn't say they're always doing the best job. There's at least an alleged organization who is supposed to do more of that seed to sale tracking, especially if you're in a regulated state. I don't think metric is the only example, but obviously metric being a major reporting mechanism, what's going in, what's going out. And so having some sort of protocol and process is a little bit more, I think, standardized in the true like high THC cannabis regulated markets. Now on the flip side, when it comes to the hemp space, I know that you guys from New Bloom's perspective are helping lead and involved in a lot of these standardization conversations. And so are they more on the high THC side or are you more on the hemp standardization? And what is maybe, maybe this can be like a forecast and be like, what do we need to do as an industry to get towards a good process? Like in your perspective, what is a good process? Like how frequently should you be testing? I think as a Texas business, I pretty well understand the Texas laws. I try to understand the other states' markets just because of the podcast. It certainly helps. But from what I understand, there's not a explicit, it's our law says, yes, you need to have your products tested at X intervals, especially from a cultivation perspective, your pre, your post. But 
nobody is saying, hey, your COA needs to be updated. Is it every batch? Is it every six months? Sometimes customers, they'll, I'm just saying this agnostically just because I've seen a wide swath of COAs and certainly even been presented COAs, which it's like, hey, we're in 2023 and the COA comes from 2021. But before we were recording, we were also talking about, unfortunately, some sometimes the market has a surplus. So people are sitting on product. And so while it was tested at a certain point, you're not actually selling it through until sometimes months, maybe even years later. So you hope they're storing it properly. But again, there's nobody who's, hey, you got to make sure that you're testing your product every six months, a year. Like what to you would be a good standard to implement? And then what organizations or conversations are you a part of to try to help enforce or establish and pin down some sort of standardization for the industries? Well, I'll welcome testing regulation, the FDA involvement and all that stuff. I think it absolutely is coming. I think they're just sitting on on a powder keg and they're trying to ignore it, but I think it is coming. I think we welcome that. I think it'll help a lot to prove transparency through the years, but from what I've, for the years to come, but from what I've seen in a lot of these state programs and a lot of what people have, what are these legislative sessions have brought up prohibition or Delta eight bans and all this, there was, there's no doubt. There was absolutely a lot of unintended, not consequences, but results of the farm bill that nobody saw coming. And because our industry is 100% consumer driven, all, and a lot of this innovation is very fascinating, but it got, I don't want to say out of hand, but it, there was a lot of things that popped up in the market very quickly. And the COVID pandemic had a lot to do with it. I think it gave a perfect setting to fuel a lot of that because people were working from home, their legislative bodies, government bodies, legislative sessions weren't happening. There wasn't a lot of inspections going on. Texas was a brand new market and Department of State Health Services made no bones about, hey, we can't enforce, we're not getting out there. We got this put in our lap. They brought somebody from fast food. They brought somebody from corn. They brought somebody from over here and said, hey, you now have a health department also, along with the other 40 hours of work that you have to do. So a lot of these states saw a lot of this stuff come up and proliferated and Delta 8 stuff pop up. So they tried to go in and hastily make these rules and these bans that may not have always may have catalyzed more innovation in a lot of ways. So standardizing testing, I, I think, is a good thing. The FDA involvement is going to happen. There was a lot of emerging market stuff that ha- you know that happens in testing and in the cannabis industry in general. And we've tried to do the best that, to have an ethical approach. And, and it served us well from the beginning, for sure. Yeah, I agree with you. I think there's no doubt about it. I think... From my perspective, there's a lot of stuff that's coming down the pipeline that, yes, it's maybe like pouring gasoline on a fire that's already started. And not that you should keep pouring gasoline on it, but it's a little bit like, okay, it's here now. So like, how do we deal with it? And so my stance has always been to regulate, don't eliminate. I think that's the saying that's come out of the Texas Hemp Coalition, which we're both a part of, especially going and lobbying federally last year and talking to a lot of the people who are leading the specifically like the farm bill from an ag perspective at a federal level. It's not like it's not being discussed. I think people are very aware of it, but you reiterating and painted a picture, which I think sometimes gets lost of, yeah, we had the perfect storm. We had this really interesting, unfortunate couple of years that was a catalyst to a lot of 
creativity as well as a lot of lack of authority and a lack of imposing regulation. And well, so rush think- to get products to market, which we've seen rush to get marijuana products to market in the past 2018 and 19, the vitamin E conversion and stuff that that's very dangerous. Right. And we see a lot of novel cannabinoids being developed or go to trade shows and a guy will come up and say, well, I can move an atom from here to here and, and change this whole molecule before breakfast. And I'm like, okay, what's the toxicity? What are the byproducts? What else is there? And what do we know about it? Well, we don't hardly know a lot. Through a lot of the novel cannabinoids that came up, New Bloom Labs has always taken a better be right than first strategy concerning the emergence of novel and synthetic cannabinoids. We take this conservative approach because over the years, we've seen many of our peer labs miscalculate concentrations of these new cannabinoids when they move too fast and that ends the reports. Classically, we saw this occur with the emergence of Delta-8, HHC, and others. And the toxicity of some of these byproducts are unknown, and the market is proliferated with gummies and externally sprayed sour belts with the maximum amount of all of these cannabinoids that I just now heard about three months ago. From a consumer's perspective, of course, we're aware of it, but younger 20s gentlemen that's going in there to buy products is doesn't know what it is. And we, and as a lab, it was concerning for us. We're constantly monitoring the market for the emergence of these new cannabinoids and we'll prioritize adding them to our assay once they're adequately, like we have adequately verified reference standards that are made from credible accredited vendors. And then consumer demand compels the addition. And that's another thing we've seen. We have chemists that come and say, hey, I had this HC and I've cracked the code. And I also have a standard for it. So if you will take this standard and add it to your assay, and then you know you can start re- taking AC reports. And we had to decline those inquiries because we only take a standard or a comparative standard from an ISO accredited provider, and that's something that we that was concerning when a lot of these HHCs and THCOs were popping up. And, uh, and the innovation is fascinating, but you just have to proceed with caution. Yeah, I think it's a very fine line to like further clarify. I think for the listeners. A testing facility like New Bloom, you're testing on, and obviously correct me because I'm like, I'm just speaking from what I think I know or what I've heard before, right? Like you're testing for things that is very scientific calculated. Is this chemical there? This chemical is not there. Is this compound there? Is this compound not there? Were any residual acids left over? That is not research on the efficacy of that compound. It's just like black and white. Is it present? Is it not present? Mm-hmm. And so with that information, you answered it, but I want to dig a little bit deeper. It is remarkable, the world of these novel minor cannabinoids, especially on this psychoactive, I almost said psychedelic. I've clearly been at a psychedelic conference for a little bit too long psychoactive perspective and it is crazy so like we really only play with delta 8 and hemp drive delta 9 i personally don't know enough about hc thcp thco thcjd and it's not to say that i think that delta 8 is above it because i know that there's bad delta 8 on the market but i think that there has been a deviation from what is a more naturally occurring cannabinoid that is then made in synthesis to something that is maybe like a true synthetic which clearly thco has been already deemed by the dea as an official yeah. synthetic and so that should be removed from the market but with that said from a testing perspective i remember early days of delta 8 hitting the market and obviously too just knowing how delta 8 is made 
there was residual Delta 9. And so those early years, it was hard to determine on a test, is this actually Delta 8 or is this something else? And so knowing that there is a lot of standards being introduced and standard is maybe not the best word in this situation, because I think standards means like we're holding something to a high authority, but just meaning, hey, I made the HC because I remember I had a gentleman on the podcast last year talking about HC. I was trying to get to the bottom of it, was really curious about it. It's essentially the hydrogenated form of THC. But he was saying that his company at the time had made the standards for HC. Therefore, they were going to go shop those standards to labs to say, hey, this is how you test HC. We've got the pinnacle standard for it. And that I would just love a little bit more clarity on that because it's essentially like me saying, hey, I'm the chemist. I made this product. I have the the magic key that unlocks it from a lab. Will you now test it? And so do you guys test like, like where does the line get drawn? Like where does New Bloom kind of reach when it comes to testing? Because I keep seeing, I'm shocked sometimes, these catalogs, these vendors, especially going to some of these shows, I'm getting ready to go to Champs next month. I know I'm going to see the alphabet soup of cannabinoids. And it is scary to even me. I think it's important to highlight that. I Again, I don't think that these are a blanket. Oh, you should trust every product out there that's labeled Delta 8 and HHC and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But I do think that there is good chemistry being done. So not to discredit the chemistry side of it and the application of the pharmacy side of it, but how do you test something that it's like, it hasn't been done before. So where does the standard come? So now I have to make a decision, both as your business trying to, to, I think, do some due diligence to ultimately the consumer. I think you and I are in agreement of everything we do is for the consumer. And so it's not everybody is selling HC. So I'm going to jump on the bandwagon, but you're certainly seeing a lot of these products hit the marketplace. And it's how do you even test that from a black and white standpoint of what was a starting material, where it came from? Because that's also my understanding. You can't tell Delta 9 on a lab if it's hemp derived or if it's from the plant. Correct. You know, the example you brought up, the interview you did last year, I don't know if it's that exact But that's a very similar example of what we decline to do, right? So we get our standards or comparators from Cerulli or or a company that has validated that standard and it's consistent. So if you order it in October, it's going to be the same as the one you order in April. And you use that as to validate your testing method to, to be able to resolve HC as our example. Well, you can't instantly resolve it because you have to run it through all the different matrices that you put cannabinoids in or the vessels, MCT oil or a brownie with chocolate or a sprayed externally applied, sorry, not sprayed. People don't like that word. Externally applied flour or gummy or anything like that. So you might be able to get 90 or 95% there, but then one thing is not quite 100% clear and, oh, you know, we're 95% there, but I'll tell you what, my lab director will not push it that 5% over the line. Unless we're 100%, we're not adding it. That example of, hey, we figured it out and here's our standard. If that standard isn't from an ISO accredited vendor, and it's not the same ISO 17025, they have a different number, but it keeps them at a level of professionalism and consistency and keeps them in check. As ISO 1705 keeps us, our standards high. No, we can only accept standards from those type of providers. And and that's why we didn't rush to add a lot of those things and took a very thorough method in when we did add THCO, DHCP, and the two HC and antibers. 
to be blunt fam it's shada here and i want to give a shout out to my own brand of premium cannabis products restart cbd as a daily user myself i can personally attest to the effectiveness of our cannabis tinctures topicals edibles and specifically our hemp derived delta 9 thc offerings whether i'm dealing with stress body aches, or just need a boost in focus, Restart has a product and cannabinoid that can make me feel better. And our customers have been loving Restart too. Here are some actual quotes from our fans. Juice said, customer service alone deserves a five star. Always super generous when we come here. Also very professional and knowledgeable. Why, thank you very much. We take those five stars and we raise you a high five. And then Laura said, this is the absolute best dispensary I've ever been to. It's run by three sisters who are all equally knowledgeable about every product they sell. Ah, Laura, thank you for seeing us. We really are out here acting like a sponge, just trying to soak up all the information. So if you're looking for quality cannabis products from CBD to Delta 8, and yes, even Delta 9, we got you. Head to restartcbd.com. By the way, we ship nationwide. All our products are federally legal and hemp-derived. So use the code 2BTOBE at checkout to get $5 off your first order on me. Our team is dedicated to providing you with the best cannabis products on the market, and we're proud to be sponsors of To Be Blunt. Thanks for supporting my brand and my podcast, and let's all restart our day with Restart CBD. Understood. Yeah. I want to talk for sure about states here in a second, because I know Tennessee is doing some interesting stuff. But while I have you just for interesting fodder, I'm really curious to get your take, because obviously you do work with both the brands on the consumable side, testing those final products, but also on the cultivation side. So testing both like you were outlining, but again, I'm not a cultivator, so I'm not pretending to know the like intricacies of that process. But again, being in the industry, I do understand those different intervals of for testing, you're getting your sampler, they're doing a homogenized test, pulling different aspects of the crop. But specifically because I think Tennessee has made a name for itself right now with THCA and from my understanding, there's a little bit of, of, it's all around the testing, which is like how THCA is hitting the market. There's something about total THC has to be less than federal, but then less than D9, depending on what your state is. So like Texas doesn't count total T, they just count Delta 9. And so I think that's where some of this is entering the market. And so I would, like to the extent that you want to talk about it, I would just be curious what that like what, how does that make sense? Is that, is what I'm saying accurate? I guess it's like there's total THC and depending on what your state's total T or Delta nine THC law, that's where the THCA is fitting in. And you talked about a little bit earlier too. It's like, Hey, I can just test this part of my crop. And if it's less than, and Hey, the THCA hasn't matured yet to a high enough or the Delta nine hasn't matured yet. And I'm getting my test done. Like to me, is that what's happening? We're just prematurely testing crops and getting a COA and saying, Hey, it's, it is what it is. Well, sample collection is everything and the timing of it is true. There's a lot of different types of cannabis out there. You've got your high CBD cannabis, your high THC cannabis, and there's a lot of articles and a lot of support that says there's a type two that's in between that has high THCA, but you have measurable amounts of CBDA or CBGA. And there are folks in hemp bill states, we'll say, 
that that are trying to refine a compliance process and get to that in 30-day harvest window probably has a lot to do with it. But what happens after that? And every every cannabinoid plant is different. So my example is that six-footer with red hair growing out of it in the back, it might not be the same as the one that passed compliance. The 30-day harvest window and all that, it's hard to tell if a store, but what I will say, if a store owner brings some flour in, and it passes under 0.3 Delta 9, they come to tell me and said, hey, my attorney says that's good. And that was just, uh, as we talk about byproducts, maybe an unintended byproduct of the hemp bill was your total THC during compliance with measurement of uncertainty. You have a 30-day harvest window, and in a wholesale or retail setting, you're in the D9 category. So as long as it's under 0.3 with measurement uncertainty D9, this high THCA thing was, they didn't see it happening, right? It was it was a scenario that they didn't forecast. No, of course not. I think all of this is scenarios that they didn't forecast, which is both I want to acknowledge that no, this was not the intention, but I love to live in reality. And it doesn't matter if it was right or wrong. This is the market that we're living in. And people on both sides of the aisle, both hemp and regulated cannabis are acknowledging this and taking advantage of this, whether they're getting into the Delta 8 market. I can not even begin to list how many brands daily I see that are coming from regulated markets that are like, I too am now going to sell Delta 8 and have drive Delta 9. The cannabis beverage market is completely split. You're seeing so many brands realize, hey, it's easier for me to go launch in the hemp drive space. Again, I'm not here to say right or wrong. I'm just here to say this exists in the market. And now how do we deal with it? And so my big understanding with COAs, and I don't know if every state is the same way, but I know Texas is, as long as I have a COA, that says it's less than, it doesn't matter what it is presently because I have a COA that says that it was. And so I think that's another interesting area that most people just don't realize about the industry. It's yes, you have these protocols and these safety measures in place, but at the same time, there's not actual regulation or authority at every step to, I don't know, I don't think protect is the right word, but oversee because I don't think the lack of oversight means that every product in these categories is bad by any means. Again, I just think it should be very, not black and white because it's extremely gray, but I do think that it is, it's not as, maybe it is as not as black and white as it is meant to be because there's just so many underbellies to this and so many sub conversations and sub sub things that it's, I don't know, man, don't shoot the messenger. I'm just here to talk about things and just try to make sense of it because I think what's happening in our market in Texas is very exciting. But then at the same time, we don't have regulated cannabis. And even the market that we have when it comes to our medical marijuana is severely lacking. And you're talking about legislation, we did not make any progress this session. So no hemp legislation was passed, no decrim bills were passed, and teacup made no progress. And so that pushes Texas back another two years for medical. And so it's just, it's really hard to not acknowledge despite that, what we are able to have and the impact that brands like mine are able to make on a consumer market, giving consumers access to these products. To me, my job is to work with the people that are doing it the most efficacious, holding themselves to self-regulation standards and to try to drive education and awareness out of good operators and good actors, which is like why it was important for me to get involved in the Texas Hemp Coalition and being able to have opportunities to talk to policymakers to make an impact to say, hey, the farm bill is coming up for amendment. I remember going into those meetings and I think we had three or four talking points. It was like, hey, we want the government to regulate this. You got to get on the FDA and the ag people are like, hey, we can't make the FDA do anything, but we would love that too. And so it's just starting to give me just a better purview of 
yes, you want to make change, but how do you make that change in a structure that is is a very slow moving process, unfortunately. But with that said, I know that Tennessee recently passed some legislation that I think is really interesting. And you were obviously talking a little bit too about these hemp specific states where they don't have regulated markets. From my understanding, Tennessee and Texas are very kindred spirits. And so I would just love to hear from your perspective, like being in Texas and being in Tennessee, are they very similar programs? Is Tennessee moving faster than Texas? Are they making more strides to protect the market for hemp drive, but also protect the consumer? And so I know you've got a lot to say about that. Yeah. And one of the key points that that I've seen, and I've spoke with some folks in some very smaller hit markets, Iowa comes to example, and Texas and Tennessee doesn't have this requirement. And if I'm not mistaken, it's Iowa that says their store in a retail setting has to have show a compliance certificate from the jurisdiction of origin, which would eliminate a lot of this, right? So you have to show, if I went and I wanted to buy a bunch of hemp from Texas and bring it up to Iowa to sell, that updated 30-day harvest window post-harvest COA is not enough. You need that certificate showing Iowa Department of Agriculture, Texas Department of Agriculture, that it passed at a certain time. So multiple user certificates to prove that it passed in a USDA hemp state. Texas and Tennessee is that way. And also an interesting point that Tennessee kind of gave a good incubator for this THCA popularity is they were under the prototype farm bill from 2014. So the first couple of years, those farmers could grow to 0.3 Delta 9 in the ground, which is very easy to pass compliance for hemp. You basically set in the ground and forget it and call your sampler out there at the end and you pass because a lot of the CBD varieties will get up to 0.4 or 5 or 6 total THC and maybe very late in the crop start making some D9 in the ground. Then, of course, your cannabinoid levels are people are trying to get CBD into the 20s, above 15% and on up. So those growers grew the first year. Okay, that was easy. Grew the second year. They're like, okay. And then there's a lot of geneticists in town and a lot of people pheno hunting, doing certain types of varieties and trials. And I just think they, by the third year they grew, they look up, they're like, well, this THCA is high and it still is under 0.3 D9. And we have now a 30-day harvest window. If that THCA continues to develop during a 30-day harvest window and we're good, like, that kind of just was like an incubator for it. And it was not intended, not written that way. But then a lot of those guys developed that type two or whatever, the flower that still has measurable amounts in CBD. With a lot of your quote unquote high THC or marijuana varieties, you look at that COA and the CBDA and the CBGA will just be very in the decimal points. So it's, it's, it's fascinating, right? And the geneticists and the phenol hunters and those guys that, that go and, and you know, develop these strains and these genetics are extremely innovative and is almost as fascinating as the chemists that make the O and the P and come up with all of that. The, the cannabis plant is just fascinating. I love it. And every month I'm learning more. I feel like I'm in the same boat. I'm like, there's just, there's so much information I know. And yet there's so much information I don't know. And I love existing in a place of constantly being curious just to try to understand it. And obviously, too, that was the whole point of coming up with this podcast. It was there's just so much information, even within a state, to try to understand, let alone another state. And then when you're getting into interstate commerce and then you're getting into like federal legislation and federal legalization, 
Now my tune is like, what does federal legalization even look like? Should we be going after descheduling? Are we really going to have interstate commerce when it comes to true high THC cannabis? But then obviously we're seeing high THC cannabis being distributed now because of the hemp bill. And I think there's still for sure a lot of things up in the air, right? You have the DEA that's supposed to come down with some wording specific to synthetics. You have the pharma, which is up for amendment. It expires at the end of this year. I think they're going to get an extension. But like to me, I am looking towards those things again to just reiterate. I'm like along for the ride. I am like trying to make sense of it. I respect the hustle and the grind. Again, there's a lot of people doing a lot of things and there's for sure a lot of bad actors. I don't want to give the bad actors like kudos in this comment. But I just I think there's so much about this industry that we just simply do not know. And to be narrow minded or isolated to thinking like, oh, shame on that state or, oh, this program needs to do better. or These people need to try this instead. It's to your point, acknowledging the cultivation side. I, too, don't think it was maybe intentional at first because I was even looking back at some COAs of just some hemp flower. Like you said, high CBD that had higher percentages of THCA beyond what that Delta 9 was. And I remember thinking like, oh, we basically been selling this with some strains already. Now we're just leaning into it, finding specific cultivars and actually bringing it to market under that moniker, getting into the marketing of it. But it still blows my mind. I was in retail the other day and I had a customer come in for the very first time. And I love when I get to be in retail because again, it's real time customer feedback. Like you're hearing from them. Yeah. Like the other day, a guy was like, man, I really hate your cherry gummy flavor because it reminds me of medicine. And I was like, okay, noted. I don't think that it tastes like medicine, but I appreciate that feedback. But I had a guy who basically said, hey, first time in, I'm from a content creator and I came here because of Reddit. Reddit said you guys had good products and did a good job. I had heard about THCA flower. And I think that for me has just always stuck out again. I think because of the market in this state that I live in, we don't have a traditional channel for people to come to this information. And maybe that's not fair to say some of these regulated markets certainly still have illicit market. In fact, coming out of the Cannabis Marketing Summit, a major stat was shared that there's allegedly over 160 million consumers of cannabis. Only 50 million are accounted for in the regulated market. That means over 110 million people are still consuming illicitly. Is that states like Texas where we don't have a market or is that still states like California where you're overly taxed? Why would you go to the dispensary? So I don't think it's fair to say it's one state or one side of the coin explicitly. But again, being very humbled in the sense that these people are coming in and they're like, well, I heard about this on Reddit. I'm like, fuck. I don't know how to speak Reddit all the time, but that was the early days of Delta A, THC, THCO. And so it, I say it jokingly, but it keeps me young where people are coming in. And I think as a business owner, I'm always making the discretion of, you can come in and ask for something, but that doesn't mean I'm going to sell it. Like I said, we never jumped on the THCO bandwagon. Certainly had people coming in. Still to this day have people come in. What's the highest stuff you have? And so it's difficult for me to discredit that. The reality is people want to get high. They really do. And yes, there's a wellness side of it and there's a medicinal side of it, no doubt. But I think we're going to always be chasing that problem. And certainly in states like Texas and Tennessee, where we have this lack of a regulated adult use market, it's what do the people have access to and what creativity can you bring to market? And so I'm looking forward to going to champs. I I don't know what new things they're going to try to sell if I'll for sure buy it, probably not, but always just curious to go submerge myself in those worlds and those conversations because it's just crazy. Sometimes I think who buys these products? And then I'm like, oh, these people buy these products and they're sold in these places. And you just you see the market for it. And so I can understand the government's perspective. How do you 
crack down on it? Where does it get fit? I've heard stories of, well, it'll be regulated like alcohol and like beer and liquor are. These places are allowed to sell hard liquor and these places are allowed to sell your spirits and et cetera. Will the same happen in a psychoactive and non-psychoactive cannabinoids? And I think Texas in particular, for sure, Tennessee too, just being like an OG hemp state. I think we have these markets that we're like on the front lines watching it unfold because we don't have a regulated market. So it's, I don't know how this gets sorted. So I would, I just would love to kind of, I guess, end on what is New Bloom excited about for the future? Like, where are you investing your focus? What are some of the things that are on the horizon that give you hope, <laughs> give you excitement, maybe? Well, a lot of things. The Tennessee bill, to get it, give you some more details about that, is is a really good example of something that that could bring a lot of success to the industry. Tennessee chose to regulate hip-derived cannabinoids instead of prohibiting them, as other states have. The bill simply provides a few basic consumer protections. Some of those are 21-plus access, retail licenses for sales, products kept behind the counter, 25-mig cannabinoid cap on the individual units, very common sense stuff, full panel lab testing and all inputs containing cannabinoids that are put into adjustable products. So like those base products that are going to be made into adjustables need to have that full panel and need to be available in the stores. And I think that's really good. My brother and has a, like the Texas Hemp Coalition that we're so proud to be involved in, John's heavily involved in Cultivate Tennessee and was part of the lobbying group that, that put that helped with those bills, as the other groups did in Tennessee, to help put those bills to get it passed. And it was really exciting. New Bloom Labs is exciting for a lot of new things. One of the things, one of these I knew you were going to ask, and well, we do have some very big announcements to make later this summer. My CEO might kill me, but just for you, Shada, I'm happy to give your listeners a preview. Hell yeah. To start, I spent the early spring supervising the installation of our new laboratory that will serve the emerging adult use cannabis market in New York. Woo! Uh, it's exciting. We spent, it, I think it was like the longest winter of my life because I was in Tennessee for most of the winter and then went up there in March and two days later, it snowed 10 inches. And so it just prolonged the winter in the cold weather to like almost the six months for me. But it was fun going up there. Through our work and testing for him, producers throughout the country, we had a lot of great clients in New York already through doing compliance process there. And unsurprisingly, many of them are participating or planning to participate in the New York Adult Youth Program, which was great. They gave hip producers first dibs on, license, on cannabis license. Really great, really progressive. And for the last few months, we've getting a lot of calls from down there and said they've had issues with labs and one in, and basically saying, we need you guys up here. We heard them and we've been down there or up there trying to get everything open, but there's also been a lot of encumbrances with the, with the market up there and with the cannabis commission. And it's, it's definitely been a slow process, but we're really excited about it. We want to bring integrity and efficacy to an industry where there's a lot of people choose to operate in a gray area. And because it's so consumer driven, we have to be on the front lines in these customer service calls that I get every day and speaking with Shada that's got the hot dog retail location in Austin, you're there in the front lines and your feedback and what we hear from stores is fascinating. And we just want to be at the forefront of really the the efficacy and doing things the right way really means a lot to us. I can get into all the points of our ethics that we have, that our blind intake and untraced 
unbiased traceability, a lab being unbiased is very important. And we have all these keys listed on our editor on our website. You guys can go check out. It means a lot to us for because we saw a lot of folks would come to us and it's just it's called lab shopping. And folks would come to us and say, Hey, well, this is conflicting with this. And I called this lab and I had issues with it. And they just said, Well, okay, well, what's the target supposed to be? What is this? What is that? A lot of facilities ask you 90% of what's there before you even start testing it. And we have blind intake. It's nothing but an, a barcode to us, right? So those ethical practices and just how our SOPs were set up in the beginning has served us well from the beginning, because there's no doubt you get asked, you get preposition, but it does happen. And, and it's not, it's consumer driven. I don't really put the fault on the man wanting the test or wanting it to be a certain way. He's just trying to get his products to market and farmers try to do the same thing. So us starting at the farmer level and working our way up really was able to like lock elbows and grow together with the industry and with the farmers. And, and it's just, it's been really prideful work for me, the years I've done it. And if you never work a day in your life, you all that whole thing, right? So I get out of bed every day and just love to go to work. Yeah, I really admire everything that you guys have built with New Bloom. It's obviously why I wanted to have you on the podcast and just to give you an opportunity to just give us some insight from your personal story and experience. And also because I think these conversations need to happen. I think that they're sometimes uncomfortable because it is ultimately, again, for me, like everything we're doing is for the consumer. And so to your point, just that you made it. I don't fault the operators either. It's, hey, I'm just trying to sell my product. I'm trying to do X, Y, and Z, put food on the table, pay my bills. I got a team. Not that it justifies any of it. But again, I think if we could all just take a step back and realize how fast this industry is moving and how challenging it is to stay afloat and what is actually happening, I think that we could really learn from each other and actually start to make implement and change things like that. So it is really important for me to, yes, focus on the federal conversation and work towards like federal legalization and federal standards. But at the end of the day, it's like, what state do you operate in? And how do you clean up your own backyard? And how do you clean up your own program? Which is why I'm so involved in Texas. And I think sometimes people maybe don't understand that. It's what are you guys doing in Texas? Wild Wild West people. It's listen, we're trying to make the best with the information that we have and the resources that we have, not just as operators, but like actually as a state program. Like you said, Texas, I think there's maybe four people in our Department of State Health Services who operate and regulate hemp for the whole state of Texas. I don't fault them for not doing their job, but I want to hold them accountable to not doing their job because that is a disservice to the consumer. And it's also a disservice to the operators who have gone through the process of getting licensed and try to hold some sort of self-regulation, getting their products tested, third-party tested, things like that. But it is only, I just keep thinking we have a print framed in our house and it's I think a stoic, stoic saying, it's find joy in pushing your boulder uphill. And it's just it's a sage thing. It's a very sage thing. <laughs> but well, it just, it, I look at it every day as I leave. And I just, as no matter how intense my day is, hard, uncomfortable, challenging, it's just like I welcome the opportunity to be uncomfortable. And I think, again, just to reiterate too, and maybe this is all coming from because I just came from out of town where I was at like a psychedelic and a cannabis conference, which is a lot of these conversations were popping up just around the synthetic side of things. But I really want people to walk away, like just being curious. Like, I, again, I'm not trying to say one is right or wrong. It's just be curious, ask questions, try to do better, try to 
always be in a posture of educating yourself, learning, doing the due diligence to work with providers like yourself, Jesse and New Bloom, people who are showing up and they're they're putting things out there so that we can learn and grow. I think if anybody's, I do everything right and there's nothing wrong with me and the way that I operate my business is completely kosher and green. It's, man, we're all trying to figure it out. Everybody, every side of the industry, regulated, non-regulated, illicit, hemp, cannabis, like you name it. And one of the things that means a lot to me and I feared for the first couple of years that I was in the industry is Delta 9 has a long history. It might not be a gross product, but it has a long history of being generally regarded as safe. And these new synthetic cannabinoids that are popping up don't have that years and years of human ingestion. And uh, I really think, and I encourage your listeners to go back because we hit a lot of the high points, but if you really want to get technical, I encourage your listeners to listen to your South by Southwest panel Mm. recording that you did. I thought a lot of those guys did a really good job of giving their glove analogies. Andrew Pardum spoke about how TACB came up and how strong it is. And his first thing was to go into academia and go into studies. Well, guess what? There's not many. And the ones are very cautious. So that business made the decision to not go down that route. But did everybody? No, of course not. So what I don't want is somebody getting hurt. The spice that spiked up and got popular. And then as soon as some representative's children got hurt, boom, it went away. That's all it takes. The right person to get injured and really get it out there. Well, all this, it'll all go away. And I don't want anybody getting hurt, but I want people to seek the relief they need. And everyday life, right? The cannabis plant, whether it's fiber and grain, whether it's the cannabinoids, whether it's the THC, it's to help daily and human life. And that's what we're on this planet to do is to have happy days. And that's what I wake up every day trying to do. That wraps up another fantastic episode of the To Be Blunt podcast. And I hope you've enjoyed the enlightening discussions and insights we've shared today. But the conversation doesn't end here. I invite you to join my vibrant community of cannabis enthusiasts, experts, and advocates. So what can you do to stay connected and get involved? First, make sure you subscribe to To Be Blunt on your favorite podcast platform so you never miss an episode. And if you've enjoyed our show, I would truly appreciate it if you could take a moment to rate and review it. Your feedback helps the podcast grow and reach more listeners like you. Next, head over to our website, www.tobebluntpod.com, where you'll find a wealth of resources, exclusive content, and our show archives. While you're there, be sure to sign up for our newsletter to stay up to date on the latest cannabis news and events. Lastly, I would love to hear your thoughts, questions, and episode suggestions. Connect with me and the show on social media. Find us on Instagram at tobebluntpod and at theshadedtorabi. Let's keep the conversation going and work together to dispel myths, break stigmas, and celebrate the incredible world of cannabis. Thanks again for tuning in, and until next time, stay curious, stay informed, and stay blunt.